Well, let's get right into Ezekiel today. We went through chapter 8 last Sabbath, and I think I saw some things there that I've never quite put in focus in the same way before, and how this begins in chapter 8, speaking of the church and those images of jealousy standing in the door where men have set themselves up and have set men up. They've set Herbert Armstrong up. Some of them as almost God. Uh, they wouldn't think that they're doing that. And they wouldn't say it that way, but that's what it amounts to. Uh, and they preach him more than they preach God. So, God is a jealous God, and though Herbert Armstrong is a man whom God used a great deal, I think it is wrong to set him up and try to maintain his legacy and everything he did as opposed to what God has done and did through him and is doing now and will do in the future. What God is doing is what is important, not what men or men who are the heads of church organizations that have split it off from worldwide are doing, but what God is doing. And it's easy for us to get our eyes, I guess, on what we're doing and off of Him. So there's a very strong warning here that we not idolize ourselves, that we not idolize any human being, but that we put God first. And the abominations in chapter 8 just get worse and worse as you go through and wind up down at the end where some will even be worshiping the sun, I mentioned Easter sunrise services, which is, of course, done on Sunday. So you have Sunday worship here, which is tantamount to worshiping Satan and the sun rather than God. And I I could have read this 10, 20, 30 years ago, and I couldn't have understood how this would apply to the church because nobody in the church was keeping Christmas or Easter or Sunday. Uh, my, how things change. Now we have those who claim to be part of the Church of God and who were part of Worldwide at one time by the tens of thousands who are keeping Easter, Christmas, and Sunday. But God says it just gets worse and worse and worse. And we put the branch to God's nose. So God says in the last verse of of, uh, chapter 8, verse 18, Therefore will I also deal in fury. My eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Once he decides this is the way it's going to be and starts it, it won't stop. Our God is a merciful God and his mercy endures forever. I suppose those who were floating around on logs trying to survive in Noah's flood, it was actually God's flood, but we call it Noah's flood in the days of Noah who would have cried out to God, and he showed no pity, but he let them all drown, save eight souls. Does that sound merciful? Well, to those people who were floating around on logs, it didn't seem very merciful. And if you look back and see that he destroyed probably billions of people in that flood, it doesn't sound merciful. And yet, God has a plan whereby all those people will be resurrected someday, And they will have learned a very deep and abiding lesson and will repent and be humble and will serve God, whereas before they were arrogant and rebellious and selfish and would not be told how they would live or what they would do. That sounds sort of modern. 
like today, where people will have self-determination and decide what they will and will not do, and who will tell them and who will not tell them what they should do. It is a part of rebellious human nature, and just as those people were unwilling to listen to Noah, and Noah was sent there <coughs> to tell them what to do, God sent Noah there to tell those people what to do, to preach righteousness to them. They would not hear. So God said, all right, you die. That's it. You won't be told what to do, you will die. We have a whole new generation now that has the same attitude as all those people who died in the flood in Noah's day. We in America may be some of the worst. No one will tell me what to do. I'm free. I'm an American. I can do as I please. All I can say for you is, that's the attitude you want to have. Go for it. And see where you end up. Because Almighty God has said over and over here, they are going to know that I am God. And he's not done saying it yet as we go on through Ezekiel. He says it more and more and more as we go on through. But the whole point is, you're going to know who God is. Now, some of those people <clears throat> may have begun to have an inkling as they floated by the ark before they finally drowned. That Noah was speaking the truth. And that they should have listened and should have repented and should have done what he said. And they could have been on a boat too. But the boat went on by and they died. Now, God is speaking to us here at the end time, and he's giving us essentially the same message. He said, I won't do it by flood anymore. I'll do it a different way. But I will accomplish the same thing in my fury that I accomplished before. He's not going to kill them down to eight, or us down to eight this time. He'll save a remnant to start in the millennium, but the vast majority of the human beings on this earth, within five, ten, fifteen years from now, are going to be dead. So let's go into chapter 9. <clears throat> he cried also in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. So God not only proclaims it and says he's going to do it, <clears throat> he's listed the abominations, he's made the judgments because of the sin in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, he seeks out people to actually begin to accomplish this. Behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen or the bronze altar. Commentaries say that the seventh man here was apart from the sixth. He had the writer's inkhorn. He's clothed with linen, which is a symbol of righteousness. So this was apparently a righteous man. He was sent there to record what was going on, <clears throat> to write it down. Perhaps Ezekiel symbolized that because what God gave him here in vision and through the angels was something that he was to write down, that we're to read now, these many thousands of years later, and know that what Ezekiel wrote at that time is going to come upon the populace today. They were already in captivity again, 
Ezekiel is writing 140, 150 years later, perhaps, <clears throat> still in Babylon. Among those captives who stayed there, the others went back. So he's writing of future events, not of past events. Jerusalem had already fallen. The people were already taken captive. He was already in Babylon. <clears throat> and he was projected back toward Jerusalem or toward the headquarters of Israel. And the story was to be for Israel and Judah later on. <clears throat> but six destroyers came here. And they stood beside the brazen altar, the bronze altar, that would depict the church, place of worship. So it starts with the church first, and then spreads to the nation as a whole. God will deal with those who have spiritual accountability before he begins to deal with those who only have physical accountability. So you and I are coming under the gun first. Verse 3, the glory of the eternal God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. All right, here's what I'm going to do. You be ready. You watch. You record this. And here's what he told him to do. He was to do it, and probably to record it as well. Verse 4, the eternal said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the middle of it. So here was a man clothed in linen with the inkhorn who was to go through and put a mark on the forehead of all of those who are upset by and sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in our society. Everybody has to have a mark. Everybody has to have a mark in their forehead. Everybody. Now, we have talked more about those who would have the mark of the beast, haven't we? But those who are set aside for God also have to have a mark. In other words, everybody has to belong to somebody. You can't sit on the fence. You have to either wind up in the camp with the mark of the beast or in the camp of God. There is no in-between. And you will be marked one way or the other. Uh, let's go to... I think I want Zechariah 4.10 here. Let me go back there just for a moment. Where's that the... Yeah, I think that's the one I wanted. <clears throat> Who is despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and see the, shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the eternal, which run to and fro through the whole earth. Zerubbabel is one of the two witnesses, and God says that he will have a plumb line in his hand. He will be there to establish what is upright, what is righteous before God. This is echoed in several places, but I want to tie that in with Revelation 11. And beginning in verse 1, we've been here before, but I want to tie it into this context. There was given me a reed like a rod, 
And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So in some places, uprightness is measured by a plumb line, a plumb bob that measures whether something is straight up and down or not, whether it's upright. And sometimes with a rod to measure it, to see what the measurements are, how big it is, how straight it is, how it's laid out. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So, the two witnesses here are given, and the context explains, that's who this is given to, are given the authority to measure the church, the altar, and those that worship there, to see if they indeed be truthfully converted people of God. The measure is this book. You have to be measured against the Word of God. So really the rod amounts to this book. The plumb line is this book because this is the standard of righteousness. So you measure, if you have a plumb line or a rod, you measure for uprightness based on what this book says. Are these people following what God says in his word or are they following other things? Paganism or whatever. It has to be measured against this. And what are they told to do here? Measure the temple, the altar, and those that worship there. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. So for a period of time, they are to deal specifically with the church, not deal with the rest of the world. Later on here in the chapter that it talks about how they go to the world, and the world winds up killing them. So, here, we have the same thing. Go through the midst of Jerusalem, the church, the altar. Set a mark on the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations to be done in the midst thereof. Are they really upset by the way the world is, by the way society and culture is? Or are they sort of going along with it and giving lip service to God? You know... God says, turn to him with our whole hearts. How do you know that? I think I hit upon a couple of scriptures that might give us some clue in that. He says that where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And though that may be a reference to money and thinking of money, it has an awful lot to do with our hearts. In America today, I think people think about money probably more than they do anything else. We're a very materialistic society, and making money and becoming wealthy is the goal. It is the American dream. I mean, that's what Americans want, and that's what people who come to America want. They want to get rich. They want to live the lifestyles of the rich and famous, whatever that might be. So they think about money and the acquisition of money. And that is the primary goal in their mind. Well, God says that your heart is where your treasure is. And if your mind and your thoughts are on money, then they're not on God, are they? There are a lot of different things in our society today that are not godly that people spend an awful lot of time with. So if you want to know where your heart really is, perhaps the thing to do would be to examine your thoughts. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever is in your heart, your mind, ultimately comes out your mouth. So you can examine what you talk about, what you think about, and then you can have a bit of a gauge, at least, of where your heart is. What do you spend your time thinking about? Is it about God? Today, we think a lot about money, entertainment, movies and music, sex, uh, about it, I guess, in our society today. No, there are a lot more things we think about, but those are some of the primary things that America is bent upon. Is that where our thoughts are? Or... Are our thoughts of God, His Word? What did David think about when he woke up in the middle of the night? Laid on his bed and thought of God. He thought of the troubles he was going through and how God might deliver him out of them. Now, we're physical human beings, and naturally, we have to be thinking of our jobs. If you're running a bulldozer, you can't be sitting there with a picture in your mind of God all the time. You have to be kind of watching where you're going. Or if you're driving a car, you kind of need to be watching where you're going. You can't be off in left field thinking of God all the time. I don't mean that. Some people have gone there, Protestants, where they're just thinking about the Lord. It's all they think about, they say. I kind of doubt it, but that's what they say. But in a practical application, we need to be conscious of God at all times. Every second of our lives, in some respects, boils down to that. In other words, if you're driving that car, or a bulldozer, or whatever you might be doing, always, if not in the forefront of our mind, always in the back of our minds, we need to be conscious of how God would do whatever it is that we are doing. How would Christ drive a car? Would he drive it recklessly? Would he drive it drunkenly? Would he drive it too fast for the conditions? Or would he consider other people who might be hurt by his actions? See, it comes down to every part of our lives. When we are working on a job, yes, we need to have our mind in what we're doing, because to give the boss a fair day's labor for a fair day's pay, hopefully, we need to have our attention and our concentration on the job, not thinking about the Lord. But always, in how we're doing that job, we need to be cognizant of how, if Christ had that job, he would accomplish the job. He would be working hard. He would be working smart. He would be trying to do everything he could to make sure that his employer was receiving fairness, a just weight and measure, if you will. So you never do anything that you're not considering, would God approve of this? Is this the way God would do it? That is always or should be in the back of our mind. When he says bring every thought into captivity, he is saying that we have to be constantly, totally, always aware of what is going on, and cognizant of how God would do it and how we ought to perform it. Yes, we're physical. We do physical things. 
but there's a godly and an ungodly way to do physical things. There are some, there, you know, there's nothing wrong with earning money. But if we earn it fairly, and did it become a god to us, and we put too much emphasis on it, sure, you need to make a living, <clears throat> but you should become educated enough and efficient enough that you can earn a living in a normal working day and then have time left to spend with God. I mean, specifically with Him, through prayer, through study of His Word, through having our batteries charged, you know, to use something that's battery-driven like a flashlight. You can only run it so long that it has to be recharged or the light just goes out. And we can run around on this earth doing physical things, things that need to be done, eating, drinking, uh, working, playing, um, whatever needs to be done, but it needs to be done according to God's way and according to His Spirit and walking in the Spirit. And if we go too long without a spiritual recharge, our batteries run down and we no longer walk in the Spirit but in the flesh. That's what happens to us. So that we're thinking physically and carnally. That's why it is so important that we get our batteries charged every day through prayer, through study, through contacts directly with God so that we can go out the rest of the time and walk according to God's ways. Your car won't start because the battery's down. Your flashlight won't work because the battery's down. Whatever it is, there has to be a source of power. Car's out of gas, it won't run until you recharge the gas tank. There has to be power. And if we're to live the proper spiritual lives before God, there has to be a recharge of the spiritual battery or power. You've got to have the spiritual gas if you're going to go anywhere. Otherwise, you're fighting on your own. That's what it amounts to. And I think we should consider this in our lives, examine our own thoughts, examine our own motivations, and see how much they're in alignment with what God would have us be doing. And if we think way too much about carnal physical things, and sometimes sinful things, then that shows that our heart is more there than it is with God. It's really kind of a simple equation. You just have to stop and think about it and think it through and find out those areas where you may have a wrong focus, a wrong perspective, a wrong emphasis, and then change that and get it so that it's right. It's a process of coming to turning to God with our whole heart so that he is our main focus, really our only focus, and everything else is done in the light of that focus. And if we don't, aren't generating enough spiritual life, we'll lose our focus and we'll wind up in darkness. And that's what's happening to a lot of people in the church today. They're drifting further and further from God and the light goes out. There's nothing there to recharge it. Because a lot of them think, as Ezekiel 8 says, that they're standing in the temple of God doing the right work of God, and they don't realize that their focus has shifted in a wrong direction. And that God is not with the work they're doing. They try to build it all up about how many letters we've sent, and how many articles we've preached, and how many stations or channels we're on, 
and that kind of thing. But if nothing spiritual is really happening, then is God there? Or is it a work of men? And is it an image of jealousy that has been set up that God will wipe out? Because he's not done yet. Let's go on here. Uh, we'll see that he's not. And the destruction on the church is not finished. So he says, set a mark on the foreheads of men that sigh and cry for the abominations that are done both in spiritual and physical Jerusalem. Now let's contrast this for a moment before we go on here to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. <clears throat> Verse 3. Now here's an end time prophecy for sure. Talking about 144,000. He says, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees. In other words, these horrible things that are coming at the age, at the end of the age. Don't turn all this destruction loose until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And then he says the number that were sealed were 144,000. So God is going to seal for protection 144,000 here at the end. It's going to be fair game for Satan on the rest. And be killed. Destroyed. Only 144,000 have the seal of God. Now, some of those have already lived, have been sealed, and died. So what we're talking about here is the final number that leads up to 144,000, the number being finished. Paul talked about some of those in his day and time that had been sealed and that were going to be a part of the first fruits. He wrote to some who he called the first fruits in various churches. So it shows that it goes clear back then. But before it's over, there will be a total number of 144,000. They have to be sealed before this destruction comes. Chapter 9, verse 4 of, of uh, Revelation. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So he says, seal these, protect them, in chapter 7. And then it says in chapter 9, don't hurt these, but you can hurt anybody else, basically. Now, Satan counterfeits everything, doesn't he? Chapter 20. Here again, I want verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Emmanuel, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So we know this is going to be 144,000 people who live and reign with Christ from chapter 7, and that is all that reign with him that thousand years. And these are the ones who have not had the image or the mark of the beast. We can read about the mark of the beast. I think it's in chapter 17, isn't it, or 18, somewhere in there. I won't go there. We've seen those scriptures before. But they will have a mark in your foreheads and your hands, which mark you as theirs. God is going to put a mark in our foreheads that mark us as his. So there is no one, as I said before, who will not be marked. Either marked by God or marked by man or by Satan. 
And God wants certain ones marked. Well, these scriptures we've tied in now with Ezekiel 9 show that this is an end-time prophecy and that it has to do with the destruction at the end of the age, not some other captivity or destruction that might have come earlier in history. Tied in with the book of Revelation very clearly. So he said, mark all those who hate what is going on on this earth. Verse 5, and to the others he said in my hearing, Go you after him through the city, and smite, and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Only these that are clearly marked by God are to be protected. The rest, smite, slay, destroy. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. Oh, well, let's see. I, I missed first, first part of verse 6. Slay utterly, old and young, both maids and little children. And women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. So, there will be no pity, no mercy shown even for little children. This is to be a total destruction. And begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So, it says begin in the church, and begin with the elders. Begin with the ministry. God holds the ministry more important, more uh, responsible than anyone else. And he also holds men, women, and children responsible to one degree or another. Men is the head of their homes, but their wives and their children properly sigh and cry, and not like the society and culture we have around us, and mothers that they teach their daughters and sons God's ways. So he holds us all responsible, and the destruction will come of man, woman, and child, beginning with the ministry, because they were supposed to teach what was right. And if they didn't, they are held accountable first. So this is something that's beginning at the church, and I dare say has already begun with the church, because the church is scattered and being scattered, and is continuing to divide. I just heard this last week of another division of a so-called leading minister of one of the bigger groups, who has split off again and started another church of his own. So it continues. And it won't stop now. It will continue until not one stone is left upon another. The division is not over. So it has begun. The, the words we're reading right here today in this moldy book of Ezekiel are happening before our very eyes. This isn't something way off in the future. It's something we can look at in the journal in news we receive from others, on church websites where they may announce that so-and-so has left or been marked or whatever, we can go right now today after this service, if we so desire, and see the evidence that God is putting judgment, starting with the church and the ancient men or the elders before the house. It's a now book. Verse 7, and he said to them, 
defile the house, fill the courts with the slain. Now, he's talking here first to the church, spiritually dead. Go you forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. Now, we are seeing spiritual death, sickness, famine, and disease in the church right now. But when God gets done with this whole thing and he unleashes the death, physical death and destruction on the nations of Israel, it will also include those in the church who did not meet the mark. Who did not stand up properly against the plumb line and uprightness and uprightness and righteousness. They will be physically slain, not just spiritually as we see today. And it came to pass, while they were slaying them, and I was left, but I fell upon my face and cried and said, O oh Lord God, will you destroy all the residue of Israel in your pouring out of your fury upon Jerusalem? Are you going to kill us all? Ezekiel was there to witness, to direct that this be done and to record it for future, a future generation, us to read. And when he saw in vision how terrible and how total this destruction was, he fell on his face and said, are you going to kill all of us? Then said he to me, God said to him, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. The land is full of blood, the city full of perverseness. For they say, the eternal has forsaken the earth, and the eternal sees not. Among our leaders in this nation, or let me rephrase that, the leaders of this nation, for the most part, are tied in in some way with the occult. They worship a false god, Satan. Some of them openly. Some of them worshiping a false Christ. But they're all tied in to Satan in one way or another. We witnessed the death of Saddam Hussein today by hanging and there are many in this country, and a larger group of them all the time, beginning to call for the trial of George Bush and Dick Cheney as war criminals, who have killed people, innocent people, by the tens and hundreds of thousands, for no reason other than oil, personal enrichments, enrichment of the big corporations that they play footsie with. There's much blood that has been shed by the leaders of this country. And more and more people are beginning to wake up to that fact and to call for these people to be brought up on the sins, the murders, the crimes that they have perpetrated. Now, there would be a great hubbub about this, and may, may be at some point, Saddam Hussein has people who are crying and in great grief that he has died. Probably more cheering that it happened. I don't know the numbers. 
So some were for him and some were against him. And for the leaders of this great Babylon that we live in, some would be for them and some are against them. But the popularity of our president and vice president is reaching an all-time low now. So there are more and more people who are turning against them and realize that what is being done is not being injustice, done in justice and fairness and in love and all that ought to be done. It is not being done to save our country. It is being done to make wealth for a very few. That's the purpose. They say, oh, it's going into civil war. We don't want it to be a civil war over there. Yes, they do. That's their goal and their purpose over there, is to create civil war. And they're doing a fine job of it. They want to destabilize the Middle East. They want the Middle Eastern people to go to war with one another and destabilize the whole thing so they can take over the whole of the oil fields. Our leaders are not stupid. They understand that China and Russia and India are expanding and need energy. And this is a war over energy. They want the Kurds to fight the Shiites and the Shiites to fight the Sunnis. They're trying to destabilize it. And if it isn't going into civil war and destabilization fast enough, they will send a surge of twenty to 50,000 more troops over there to be sure that it destabilizes faster. Because some are already saying, retired generals from our armed forces, that if you send more soldiers over there, you will only create a greater strife. Because they hate us. And the more of us there are, the worse it's going to be. Those men appear stupid to a lot of people. But when you understand their goals and purposes, then what they are doing is not stupid but very clever. When you're trying to destroy instead of set up democracy, then you do things that seem stupid to people who think you are trying to set up democracies over there. No, they're not stupid. They're clever, sly like a fox. What we need to grasp is that these men are part and parcel with and manipulated by a small group of men who are trying to take over control of the world, and they're doing it to the behest of Satan the devil who wants to have his own millennium. And what they're doing in the Middle East is exactly the same thing they're doing here. There is a great movement to destabilize America. The way you do that is destroy the economy by making your dollar worthless, by printing billions and billions and billions of them so that terrible inflation occurs. You do it by making easy credit. I'll dare say 20, 30 years ago, you didn't get credit card offers in the mail every week, did you? Now you get a handful every week. I don't care who you are. You may be jobless. You may be working for six, seven, eight dollars an hour, and you still get credit card offers. It didn't used to be. Used to, you had to really qualify, and you had to write down all this and prove that you would use that credit card properly, and that you would pay your bills and all this before you could get one. 
And now they'll give it to virtually anyone. And they'll give you a whole pocket full. If I had taken up and said okay to every credit card offer that has been given me in the last ten years, I could be in debt millions of dollars if I filled all those credit lines. Millions and millions of dollars. They're making it easy to go in debt so that they can destroy the middle class and make us all peasants. And they are deliberately letting Mexicans cross the border by the millions to destabilize this country, to ultimately create a civil war between whites and browns and blacks, just like they're doing in the Middle East. It's the same process. They're going about it a little differently here. But they are already joining us together with Mexico and Canada as one country. They're trying to destroy the sovereignty of this country. How can you rule the world if you don't destabilize and destroy the sovereignty of the countries that are there so that they can all come under one umbrella? If your goal is to rule the world, you have to get rid of those who presently are independent and sovereign. That has to go away before you can bring your millennium in. It should be clear to us that they're doing the same thing here they're doing in the Middle East, and none of it is good for us. None of it. What does he say? The land is full of blood, the city full of perverseness, they do not have our best interests in mind at all. The church is full of that, where men are seeking money and numbers of people, power, greatness, whatever, and brag about being the apostle or the prophet or that prophet or some prophet or something. Great. That is what is being used in the church to foster one as the only Philadelphian is what's being done in the world to foster a world government where there will be one ruler, one beast, accompanied by a false prophet to rule the world. And you'll either have their mark or God's mark, one of the two. This land is more full of blood and perverseness than we even begin to realize. For they say the eternal's forsaken the earth. God just doesn't see. He isn't involved. They think that what they're doing is what they are doing. And that God isn't involved. Well, God is going to show that he is involved. And he's going to show that he rules. Then you're going to see that he rules. And as for me also, my eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. If we have the way of righteousness, we will be given clothes of righteousness, we'll be given crowns, eternal life, peace, happiness, and joy. But if our works are unrighteous and unholy and ungodly, we'll die. And behold, a man clothed with linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as you have commanded me. Ezekiel didn't say, now wait a minute, Lord, I've got my own agenda here. I don't want to do that. That doesn't appeal to me. You're not going to tell me what to do. No. 
Ezekiel did what he was told. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So God is going to begin to take a direct part in this. They'll no longer be able to say, well, where's God? I don't see God around. He's not doing anything. We have to do it ourselves. No, he's going to appear. He's going to manifest some things in a way that is going to make the world and their eyes bug out with awe. Here was the appearance of the likeness of a throne, and he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill your hand with coals of fire from between the cherubims, and scatter them over the city, and he went in my sight. So he's still talking here about Israel, the city. Jerusalem is a representative of all Israel here, and of the church. Now the cherubims stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. So it goes right to the very heart of things, to the inner court of the temple. Well, here again, this is speaking specifically of the church. Not of the world, but of the church, the inner inner part of the court, the temple. Then the glory of the eternal went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the eternal's glory. He's going to come suddenly to his temple. Malachi 3 or 4 says, 4 I think, first part of it, comes suddenly to his temple. He's going to be there. Instead of turning his face away, he's going to turn his face to it. See, he's going to set aside, he's going to mark those so they are not destroyed, and he's going to come to them. Let's notice Zechariah 2. Zechariah 2. We've been here many times again, but it ties in so very, very well. Zechariah 2. He's talking about the destruction of the church, the end of the 70 years in chapter 1. Then he talks about measuring Jerusalem to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Ties in with Revelation 11 we already read and with Ezekiel that we're reading now. And it talked about how the land, or Jerusalem will be inhabited as towns without walls, verse 4, because of men and cattle there. Verse 5, For I, says the Eternal, will be to her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. That's what we're reading about here in Ezekiel 10. See, the setting here is before the day of the Lord. It's when God's people are being set aside to be protected from all the horror that is about to come. And he says in chapter 10, just barely preceding, or just right after that, he says, I will come, and my glory will fill the house. Here in Zechariah 2, he's talking about his people beginning to come out of the cities and out of the world, to dwell in the field, to have cattle and little towns without physical protection, but that he will come and be a wall of fire and the glory in the midst of her. And he says, come forth, flee from the land of the north, or from Babylon, says the Eternal, for I spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the Eternal. So he scattered the church, and he says now to the individuals who are scattered, flee from the land of Babylon, and I, where I spread you abroad, 
Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So he calls for his people to come out of her, that they be not part of her sins and her plagues, as we read in Revelation 18. For thus said the Eternal of hosts, after the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. So the destruction hasn't come. This is the prelude. This is leading up to it. Okay? That's the setting. And you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me. Isn't that what we're reading in Ezekiel over and over? You shall know who God is. So then he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. So he's going to come to the inner court of the temple, the church, and dwell there. Just as these things are about to break loose on this earth. And many nations or people shall be joined to the Eternal in that day. What's the day he's talking about? He's not talking about the millennium. The context is all about the two witnesses in the building of the latter temple. That's what the context is here. And it shows the glory of God appearing during that time. Well, the glory of Satan is coming upon the world, isn't it? Isn't he going to do lying signs and wonders and call fire from heaven? Yes, he is. And God is going to do the same thing. Satan will be a counterfeit of God. But Christ is coming to his temple. He's coming to his people. And he's going to be a wall of fire and a glory in the midst of them. A protection. And I will dwell in the middle of you, and you shall know that the eternal God has sent me, and the eternal shall inherit Judah, his portion, and the holy land, and he shall choose Jerusalem again. He's scattered the church, but he's going to choose it again with the latter temple. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's ready to go to work and make all of these things that we've been reading about in all the prophecies throughout the entire Bible happen. And that's what we're reading about here in Ezekiel 10. While we're in Zechariah, let's go back to chapter 8. I want to tie this in, too, because today we're fasting. This is the fast of the tenth month, which comes on the tenth day of the tenth month, which according to Jeremiah 52 and Second Kings and other places, is talking about the siege that came upon Jerusalem. And the siege today is upon the church. Now let's pick it up in chapter 8 of Zechariah. Again, the word of the eternal host came to me saying, Thus says the eternal host, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I was jealous for her with great fury. Isn't that the attitude we just read about in Zechariah 2, where the apple of his eye, and he became very furious when anyone touches us, if we be his true people. Thus says the eternal, I am returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Same thing we just read about in Zechariah 2 and Ezekiel 10. And Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. This isn't millennial yet. This is still talking about the destruction and the prelude to the destruction at the end of the age. Thus says the eternal of hosts, there shall yet, even now, 
There still will be old men and old women who dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for a very age. So this comes at a time which Haggai says there will still be old men around that can compare the former temple with the latter temple, and what Christ himself said in that this generation shall not pass away before these things begin to come to pass. Well, what's he talking about there in Matthew 24 when he says that? The plagues at the end of the age, the flight of the church, and so on. But in that day, there will be children playing in the streets who have been protected. If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people, see, he's talking about the remnant at the end of the age. Should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the eternal of hosts, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. See why the plummet and the rod is needed? Because these have to be righteous, truthful people. Thus says the eternal hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear, in these days. Our hands need to be strong, and that's what he told us over and over in Haggai, in the Zephaniah, be strong and work, be of good courage. Be strong, you that hear, in these days, these days when this destruction is about to hit us, these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the, de- in the day that the foundation of the house of the eternal host was laid that the temple might be built. That's what Haggai is talking about. That nobody will want to build the temple of God. They'll say it's not time. But he says, build it. For before these days, there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast. Neither was any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I said, all men, everyone against his neighbor. We can't all get together and do a great work. It's hard for preachers to find jobs these days. Church falling apart. We're in a time of spiritual famine, and we're going into a time of physical famine, and we're already beginning to get there. There's severe drought in parts of this country. The Missouri River is becoming unnavigable by barges. The worst it's been in 55 years. The Northwest is being covered up with rain and snow and floods. And on and on it goes. But now I will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the eternal host. It's not going to be like it was. It's going to be different. For the seed shall be prosperous. What does he say at the end of Haggai? That all of these seeds and trees will begin to produce. The vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. There were a few who had trouble understanding why we would begin to keep these four fasts that are mentioned in Zechariah. Well, because they're in Zechariah. They're not just something written way back that had to do with only physical Israel. They have to do with the church today and the seeds that is on the church today. We are being besieged by those who would destroy us, and it will get worse. It shall come to pass, verse 13, that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Now, if it were already in the millennium, why would you be told to fear not? Because Christ would be here, and there wouldn't be anything to fear. 
He's talking about a time before that ever happens when there would be a tendency to fear. But he says, don't worry about it. I will come and I will be with you. If you go to leave the city and dwell in the wilderness, as Micah 4 says, you will be delivered there. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Eternal of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days, these latter days, this end time, to do well to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear you not. These are the things that you shall do. No fear, but here's something you must do. Okay? He's telling us what to do here. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The first and the last. The, second, the, the two great commandments, the Ten Commandments. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. They're the things that destroy peace. He says in the book of Haggai, in this place, speaking of the latter temple, will I bring peace. So what he's telling us here is, do those things that would create peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace does not come naturally, normally, or easily. Gossip, hate, strife, backbiting, hurt, selfishness come naturally and easily. Peace has to be made. It has to be handcrafted by individuals. So this is what you need to be doing. The word of the eternal of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful peace. Therefore, love the truth and peace. It all boils down to loving the truths of God and living and walking in them so that we might produce peace, which is a fruit of the Spirit of God. So he says, these fasts that we've been keeping, and we go hungry and thirsty, don't we? You're hungry and thirsty today, and it might be hard for your mind to concentrate because of physical fasting. But we're fasting today because of the destruction that has come on the church. We're fasting today because of the siege that came on Israel, and because of the other fasts and the terrible things that happened when the city fell and so on. These things are happening to the church today. But God says, I'm going to turn it around, and suddenly I'm going to appear, and I'm going to dwell in the midst of you, and be a glory in the midst of you, and protect you, and be a wall of fire around you, and I will dwell among you, and all these fasts you've been keeping, and that's why we're keeping them, will be turned into feasts of joy. So before long now, we will not fast on the tenth day of the tenth month, but we will have a feast of joy. We'll turn it around. God will turn it around. Now I, for one, am going to be working at living in truth and in peace so that I might be a part of the feasts of joy that are coming. 
I don't like to fast. Do, do any of you like to fast? I, I've never really met anybody that just seemed to love to fast. I just can't wait for the next fast. I've never heard anybody say that. I've heard people say, I can't wait to get the peace. Heard that a lot. Well, that's the attitude we need to have. We want to be in a hurry to get to this time when these fasts will turn into feasts. And he tells us the course that we must follow in order to get there, to live in truth and to live in peace and to make peace among our neighbors and treat each other with love and respect rather than greed and selfishness. That's what it's all about. And the setting is right now. So we're reading in Ezekiel this very story, written differently, different way by a different person, but it's the same story. It's about chapter 8, where God is upset with people. Chapter 9, where he says, set a mark upon those who are doing the right thing and who hate what they see around them. Set them aside for protection, and then I'm going to turn you loose to slay everyone else that gets in the way. And then, suddenly, he appears in chapter 10 with glory. I'll be a glory in the midst of you. And he goes to the inner court. He's talking about the church here. He's not talking about the court of the Gentiles. He's not talking about the world. That comes in the millennium. He's talking about the inner court, the church. And he tells the two witnesses in Revelation 11, Don't go to the world at first. Go to the church. And he himself will come to the church. So the cloud filled the inner court. Verse 3 of chapter 10 in Ezekiel. Then the glory of the eternal went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled full of the brightness of the eternal's glory. And the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court. But what God is doing in the church is going to be heard even to the outer court. The world cannot ignore, cannot deny what is going on because they can't help but hear the noise of what God will stir up. Now notice another side proof here. We'll prove this as we go on through this chapter. This is not talking about the millennium when God's throne is set on the earth. This is a portable throne in chapter 10. It's one that moves. It's not permanently set yet. This one, the Caribs carry here and there, wherever he wants it to go. So it's not the final throne to rule the earth. It is a portable throne that comes to the church, to the inner court. And he is pleased to dwell and stay with us, as we've seen in other scriptures already. And there are plenty more that illustrate that. Isaiah 54. All right, let's go on. The sound of the caravans was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaks. Made a loud noise. It's going to make a noise to the whole church and to the world when God begins to literally take a hand down here. And it came to pass that when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take fire from between the wheels, from between the caravans, then he went in and stood beside the wheels. Here is where strength, here is where fire comes from. This ties in with the remarks I made at the beginning that you have to go and be charged up. You have to have power in your batteries, spiritual power. 
And here is the source of power, brightness, power, light, heat. And one cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubims to the fire that was between the cherubims, and took thereof, and put it into the hands of him that was clothed with linen, who took it and went out. So they took that fire and gave it to Ezekiel. And there appeared in the cherubims the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubims, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by another cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearance, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. I'm lost. Uh, this, this, I, I don't understand how this all goes together, but you've got angels and wheels and fire, and it's all in this portable chariot. Uh, he was just trying to describe it as he saw it, and it must have been very, very hard to describe. So instead of trying to get into this in detail, let's just say that this was awesome. an expression our young people use, awesome. They don't know what awesome is until they see the awesomeness of God. You know, they have, sometimes they have Saddam killed, maybe. It'll be on a banner somewhere in the, in the Middle East and it'll have letters that high. It'll fill up half the page. Saddam hanged. Alright, fine. You use the biggest print you had to make that headline. Well, what are you going to say for the second time? What's awesome? You know, it's a, it's a relative thing here. When they went, verse 11, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not as they went, but to the place where the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. Now, I, I've got a steering wheel in my car, and if I want the car to go over here, I can't just turn my head, and it'll go there. In fact, if I turn my head this way, it might go that way. You have to steer the car. And this one, these cherubim, and this portable throne, this vehicle, are so tuned to Christ, who is there, that wherever his head turns, that's where it goes. Now, that is synchronization. That is power steering. Where the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. No nonsense. They didn't swerve around here and there. They just went straight where he looked. And their whole body and their backs and their hands and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels that they four had. So we got eyes and wheels, and I don't know whether it's light. I don't know what it is, but... I want to see it someday, within the next few years. As for the wheels, it was cried to them in my hearing, O wheel, whatever that means. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. Now, Satan has counterfeited those things by putting those animals and so on as symbols of nations. God got there first, didn't he? He had all that symbolism, and even in his portable throne it's there, before man and Satan copied it. The cherubims were lifted up, 
This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Kibar. Now, there was life in it. Christ was there, and he is the life. He is the power. He is the strength. If we're going to do anything on this earth, it's got to be by his power, not by us standing up in the temple saying, we are so great, we're the most wonderful Christians, and we're the apostles, and we're the, you know, whatever. Oh, garbage, that's nauseating. No wonder God throws up and spits us out of his mouth, spews us because of the vanity and the ego that we have shown. And when the cherubims went, the wheels went by them, verse 16, and when the cherubims lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also turned out from beside them. And when they stood, these stood. And when they were up, lifted up, these lifted up themselves also. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Christ's portable throne. And his power was there, and they were filled with his spirit. And whatever he wished, they did. Oh, I wish I was like that, so that whatever God wished, I just did it. No equivocation, no whining, no saying, ah, but I just wish I was that responsive. So that whatever he wanted, I did it. That's what he's telling us here, that we need to be, have our whole heart in God. And he said, when you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. For every molecule in us has gotten to the point that we want to serve God and please Him in everything we do. Then we're usable. And these are in perfect accord with Christ. Verse 18, Then the glory of the eternal departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them, and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. So he came to the inner court, and then he came out through the door, the threshold, and hovered above. So it's a portable throne. See what I said? It's not the throne in Jerusalem that is there forevermore, but this one can move about. But he's there. And he comes to his church, and then he comes out and hovers above. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel, by the river of Kibar, and I knew that they were the cherubims. The cherubims would be with no one but Christ, would they? So it has to be speaking of him. For everyone had four faces apiece, and everyone four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same faces which I saw by the river of Kibar, their appearances and themselves, they went every one straight forward. So, in the midst of this, when the preparations are being made for the destruction of the church, the destruction of the nation, that's the whole context here, God about to bring judgment, he suddenly appears in glory at the inner court of his church. And he will be a glory in the midst of his church. And everything around it will be destroyed. Everything that does not have the mark, every man, every person who does not have the mark of God in their forehead will accept the mark instead of the beast. And they will be fair game to be destroyed by all these powers and forces that are about to be released 
on this earth. But we have opportunity to know and to understand that there's an intervention coming and that we can be part of it. If we will walk in truth and in peace and learn to love our neighbors as ourselves, then Christ will appear to us. That's, that's the bottom line. It's not what a great work we're doing, but it's are we really living the way of God as opposed to the way of man. And that's the judgment that will be made by this word, because it's the standard. And that's how God will know. See, that Ezekiel was in type going over, looking down, and seeing whom to place the mark of God on. So he had to see righteousness. He had to see a difference between these people and these people. It had to be obvious to him. To know that there is a person living in the way of God, I'll put the mark on that one. That one is thinking more like the world. Don't put God's mark there. That's where the mark of the beast goes. I think we spend too much time worrying about the mark of the beast and not enough time being concerned about what, whether God's angel is going to put his mark on us. We need to be spending more time learning truth and peace than we do fearing the beast. That's what Isaiah 8 tells us. Don't fear them, fear me. Because my angel is the one that will mark you as my people, and you will be protected. And I will come and live in glory among you. Well, that's a good place to stop for today.